soon are we to Christ's second coming? And what did Christ say must occur before he comes? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. I'm Kevin Harris, and today, Pat welcomes a special guest, Pastor Peter Tsukahira. He's a Japanese-American who is now a citizen of Israel. And in this presentation before a live audience, you'll hear stunning evidence that Jesus' words in Matthew 24 are quickly taking place. Now, as you listen today, please stop by our website, evidenceandanswers.org. There you have access to a multitude of audio and written material from Dr. Zucharin on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism and Pat's new book, The Apologetics of Jesus, co-written with Dr. Norman Geisler. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now let's go to Pastor Sukahira for part three of his message called God's Tsunami. Two things that Jesus himself said must happen before he returns. And so uh, if you have your New Testaments, let's get it out and turn to Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. Here's towards the very end of his ministry. Jesus is lamenting over, over Jerusalem. And in fact, when you come and to Israel, uh, you can go to the very place where it's believed he spoke these words uh, on the Mount of Olives, looking back uh, across the Kidron Valley to the old city. Uh, he said in verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, uh, of course, he's quoting from the scriptures, and in Hebrew, we would say this, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, Baruch haba, blessed is he, blessed is the one who comes. But you know, in, in modern Hebrew, Baruch haba simply means welcome. Someone comes to your door, and you go, Baruch haba, you know, welcome, come in. And uh, so what Jesus is saying to his city, Jerusalem, he's saying, you won't see me, I'm not going to return. And of course, we know from the, from the scriptures that he's returning to the Mount of Olives. And so, which is Jerusalem. So he's not going to come back until there is a Jerusalem that says, welcome, King Jesus. Which leads me to believe he's talking about a messianic Jerusalem. In fact, some people would say he's using Jerusalem really as a symbol for the nation, the way sometimes our newspapers do. You know, you might read a, uh, a newspaper headline, uh, Washington uh, cautions Beijing over uh, inferior milk products or tainted milk products, all right? So there, Washington and Beijing, of course, are using, being used symbolically uh, for their nation. So maybe what Jesus is saying here is that I'm not coming back until it can be printed, Jerusalem welcomes Yeshua, the king, to come back and to reign. Okay, so what this speaks to us in the, in the messianic body in Israel is that he's expecting a messianic Jerusalem before his return. Okay, that's one of the fulfillments, and that, that begins to explain why there are congregations today in Israel, why it's important for us to preach the gospel, why it's important for Gentile Christians not just to stand with Israel, but to understand that, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, not all Israel is Israel. There is a messianic Israel. There's a saved Israel, an Israel within Israel. And uh, messianic Israel is really the, the redemptive seed of the entire country. Uh, some people come and they spend time in Israel and they, and they really notice after a while that our country is not a godly country. We've got major, major problems and injustices and all kinds of uh, issues, okay? All kinds of dysfunctions. And, uh, you know, Christians will say, you know, God would be well within his rights to judge the Jewish people again. You know, in a way, 
uh, we who, who are dedicated to preaching the gospel there could, uh, could, in a realistic sense, almost agree. You know, you're right. We are, we are an ungodly nation. Our, our political leaders are ungodly people. They need all the, all the prayer in the world. But that only highlights the significance and the importance of the redeemed remnant. I say to people like that, I tell them, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah weren't destroyed for their sin. They were, uh, God was willing to spare the entire, those entire cities if he could find just 10 righteous people in them. They were destroyed for the lack of a remnant. And so that's why it's important that there's a redeemed remnant in Israel today. And I believe this scripture speaks of its growth and the importance of our mission, which is to preach the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile in Israel so that we can have a time of national revival, which we believe the New Testament predicts. Okay, so here's one fulfillment that must take place according to Jesus before his return. Jerusalem, you have to say, Jesus, you're welcome here. Come back. Okay, what's the other fulfillment? Let's take a look further down in Matthew 24, the next chapter. Okay, Matthew 24, verse 14. Now, this is a fascinating chapter. And if you're at all interested in the end times, I highly recommend that you begin with a study of Matthew chapter 24. Because uh, this has been called the backbone of biblical prophecy. It's the spine and all the other prophetic chapters in the, in the Bible uh, attach here. It's important because this is what Jesus himself said about the end times in a private conversation to his own disciples in response to a direct question. They get him alone on the Mount of Olives and they say, tell us what are the signs of your return? And he tells them. And it's in Matthew chapter 24. Wars and rumors of wars, and we don't have time to get into that, but it does talk about the, the, the era leading up to his return, and I believe that we've already entered that era, and that we are dealing with wars and rumors of wars. He said, see that you're not frightened by these things. These things must come to pass. Nation will rise against nation, but the end is not yet. And he ends that portion of his, of his teaching on the end times with this verse, in verse 14, and he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So what I gather from this is that Jesus is expecting this transforming power of the gospel to go to every nation. I see in this the justice of God. When he sits on his great throne and judges the nations, there will not be raised fists out there somewhere in the back People from uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, protesting that God gave the Europeans 20 centuries with the gospel and never visited their nation once. That he gave America wave after wave of awakening so that, uh, so that you, can count the, you can count the waves by naming the preachers who rode those waves, starting with Jonathan Edwards and, and D.L. Moody and Charles Finney and Billy Graham and all, all the rest, Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham and... and you name it, you've had so many waves of the gospel, and, and when did the people of Iran ever have one, okay? So I, I believe what Jesus is saying in this, he's saying, I'm not coming back until every nation is visited. And I, I further want to make the point that he says the gospel of the kingdom, and I believe that this is a significantly different gospel than is preached in most churches today. I believe in most evangelical churches today, we settle for a subset of the gospel of the kingdom that might be called the gospel of salvation. And we, we believe that you, you, you go out and you, you talk to people and you, you pray with people and you preach the gospel to them and you get them to read the four spiritual laws and you lead them in the sinner's prayer and you bring them to church and then they get counted on Sunday and your job is done. That's part of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is much 
bigger than that. And more often than not, I'm now being asked more to speak on this area of what is the kingdom of God and what does God expect? Because to the, to the Jews, the kingdom of God, it had to do with their entire nation. They were the nation that God chose to be king of. He met them in the desert. He, he, he said, you are going to be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I'm going to be your king. Moses is just going to be my prophet. He's just the servant of God. I'm the king of Israel. Uh, I believe, and I was just in, in Hong Kong in, uh, earlier, earlier this year, and uh, what surprised me in Hong Kong was how vibrant it is. Because the last time I was in Hong Kong was many years ago before the British handed it over to the Chinese. And at that time, everybody with money was leaving. They were, try they were going to Australia, they were moving their funds offshore because, the, because the, the conventional wisdom was when the communists take over, the economy is going to tank and the churches will be restricted. So make your plans now. Okay, I was just back there a few months ago. The exact opposite happened. The communists came in, they kept their word, they, they preserved the Hong Kong system. The economy is skyrocketing there. They're building the world's tallest buildings there. They're, they're, it's, it's booming. The economy is booming there. And the churches, it's like a fresh wind. Revival has come to the churches. They're doing better under the communist Chinese than they did under the British. You know what? That, that leads me to believe that the day is not far off when the communists in China will simply come out and say, you know what? We think that to be a good Chinese communist is to be a Christian, a Christian communist, okay? I mean, what they, that's what they did a few years ago, right? When they, told, they opened the doors to capitalism, they said, a good Chinese communist is now a capitalist. Go out and make money. Okay, and everybody said, okay, and they did that, okay, and I believe now they're realizing to have this prosperity really grow in China, we need, we need a population that knows the difference between right and wrong. We need to drive corruption out of our government. We need to have good courts. We need to reform our legal system. Where are we going to find people like this? Moral people, people who are responsible to a higher authority. Well, they need to look no further than the Christians, right? And I believe that's what's going to happen. And when this church in China comes above ground, it's going to stun the world. Stun the world. And it will make what's taking place in Korea look small. Because I already know that there's leaders of the house church movement in China. They already have five, six million people that are connected to them. So when that church comes above ground, the idea of having 800,000 in your congregation, it's going to be nothing. And if they even do a fraction of what was done in this country in terms of putting righteousness in the legal system and in the government and in the marketplace and in their culture. I'm telling you, what we're looking at is the rise of a huge Asian Christian civilization. They're going to pull Korea into their orbit. They're already pulling Japan into their orbit. I believe the hope of Japan is Chinese revival. The Singaporeans, the Taiwanese, all being all of their business is taking place in China now. And they have more PhDs. You know, there's more PhDs per square kilometer in Seoul, Korea than anywhere else in the world. Okay? And now they're all doing their business in China. This year, the total trade between Japan and America, it just changed. No, it was just this year. Now Japan does more trade with China than it does with here. So you can just, you can just feel this thing growing in, in, in mass and in density. And what's, what's amazing is that Christianity is at the core of it. God is doing in Asia what he did here and what he did in Europe. 
and what he did in the Greek-speaking world. But the wave is bigger now, and the wave is moving faster. Okay, so where is this wave going? This rectangle here is called the 1040 window. And basically, it's just an idea of missions uh, specialists. And they say that 90% of the people in the world who have yet to receive this, the gospel live in this rectangle. 90% of the people who haven't ever had a movement of God in their country. Okay, and of course, this red area is the Islamic world. And probably that will begin to that'll work as a unit. Okay, and so what I'm telling you is that this gospel of the kingdom is coming like a huge tsunami wave, right? And the edge of it is right here. And I'll tell you how we measure the edge of a wave like this. It's when I go to a country like Singapore, and I'll have a conference like this in a Singaporean church, I might, I might just ask them, I'll say, how many of you sitting, sitting in this conference, how many of you are first-generation Christians you did not have Christian parents, and more than 90% raised their hands, okay? And it's the same in Malaysia, and it's the same all over China. So when you're looking at huge, huge numbers of first-generation Christians, I'll tell you what you're looking at. It's not just the wave, you're looking at the edge of the wave, okay? They say it was our generation, it was just in the last 20 years, all of a sudden, we all started to become Christians. Everyone in my class became Christians. Everyone in my neighborhood became Christian. That's what's happening over there. That's the edge of the wave. And it's moving through East Asia. And it's moving through this 1040 window of unevangelized people. So the, the, uh, the edge is right here. How about India? You know, I was just in a, in a conference in Baton Rouge uh, 10 days ago. And I happened to sit next to a, an Indian pastor who'd been a beggar, a street person as a, as a young man. And then he got saved and became an evangelist. And now he oversees 2,000 churches. 2,000 churches. And he says, come to India <laughs> and I'll take you around. <laughs> I, I could just imagine myself, you know, going through 2,000 churches. I mean, how, how does he do that? He says, well, I travel all the time. He says, I live on the road. I, he says, I'm just, I just constantly circulate through these, uh, through these churches. I do one region at a time. And what he was telling me is that Christianity in India is beginning to explode. So much so that it's provoking tremendous op uh, opposition in some, uh, in some provinces. And Hindu, Hindu militants are fighting back against uh, Christian evangelism. And, and there have been martyrs just in the last uh, four or five months, a lot of them. And... Uh, but the Indian Christians I talk to have this great vision. Uh, their vision is our revival will be greater than China's. Okay? I mean, they really want to see their nation change. And it's, they believe that now is the generation to see it, see it done. So this wave is moving here. It's still moving west. It's coming down that six-lane highway. It's coming down the old silk roads back to Jerusalem. And, you know, there is a Chinese uh, indigenous movement, missions movement, and they call it the Back to Jerusalem movement. And their idea is that God has raised them up to bring the gospel west, okay, through Central Asia in the back door of the Islamic world. You know, these uh, nations like Iran, Iran is here, okay, it, uh, it believes its great enemy is over here. America is the great Satan, you know, you're the great Satan. And Israel is the little Satan, okay. So Iran believes all its enemies are over here, but it's actually this incredible wave of the gospel coming from this direction that is going to transform the Islamic world. 
and uh, it's Asian Christians that are leading the charge. It's Chinese evangelists, it's Koreans, and more than, uh, more than likely, it's Filipinos. You know, the Filipinos have five million of their citizens working already in the most closed countries of the world. And we estimate that between five and seven percent of the Filipino population are born again. So we're talking about tens of thousands of born-again Christians in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, in Iraq, all over, the, all over this, uh, this very, very closed Islamic world. And uh, occasionally we get, uh, we get reports uh, from, from them, you know, because they're there as caregivers. They're taking care of children. They're there as nannies. They're taking care of old people. And, uh, you know, so they're in the, the palaces of the rich and famous of the, the royal families, and they're rocking their children to sleep, singing, Jesus loves me. <laughs> I know, they're having a tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, influence. Not only that, missions agencies are trying to catch up with what God has been doing and are beginning to train these Filipino houseworkers to be intercessors, just simply to go and to pray, and to pray through these countries, and to open up. The, uh, these countries spiritually to this move of the gospel that is, that, is, that is coming. So we believe that this gospel is moving, still moving west, and that is about what it has to finish. It's moving faster now. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you how long it's going to take, but I am going to say that's the unfinished work. And the way I read it, Jesus said, this must take place before I come back. So if you want to know, in my understanding, when he's going to come back, this is the, one of the things you have to look at. Keep your eyes on Israel. There must be a Jerusalem that says, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then take a look at the nations and say, where are the nations that have never, never had a move of the Holy Spirit that went out into the corners of their society? And let's pray for those nations because the gospel is coming and it's going to finish its work before the Lord returns. And I believe if you get these two things, you can basically begin to kind of get an idea where we are in, in the end times. Okay, now let's look at this convergence. And here in Romans chapter 11, Pat uh, mentioned, mentioned these scriptures. Here I think is one um, useful scripture because it kind of brings these two trends into, um, into focus. Let's take a look, Romans 11, 25, and 26. <clears throat> Here's what Paul writes. I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, a partial hardening. And now that's good news for us because Israel is pretty hard. And, and when it says in Ezekiel, I'll take out the heart of stone, uh, we don't consider that to be an overstatement. Uh, I would say after having worked here and in Japan and now with the Jewish people, that the Jewish people have got to be among the hardest, if not the hardest people to reach with the gospel. The resistance is so deep. It has, it has to do, yes, with 2,000 years of Christian anti-Semitism. The Crusaders came and slaughtered them. The Inquisition tortured them to accept Jesus. The Nazis, uh, you know, wore the Iron Cross, you know, and, and Nazism arose in Germany, which was the cradle of the Reformation, the most Christian country in Europe. Okay, I mean, they have no reason to, to love Christianity or the Christian message. But even that, 
their resistance is deeper than that. It's deeper than that. There's a supernatural side to it. God says there's a, there's, God's word says there's a veil over their eyes, even at the reading of the scriptures. The veil is only removed supernaturally in Christ. He says in, in Romans chapter 11 elsewhere, it said, God chose a remnant from among the Jews and the rest he hardened. Okay, so there's a supernatural hardness and yet it has pleased the Lord to choose our generation to begin to remove that hardness. And if you want evidence of that, you just come to Israel and spend a few days, worship with us, with a Messianic Jew on your right, right and a, uh, um, an immigrant from the former Soviet Union and an Arab Christian on your left, and uh, you'll, you'll really begin to understand that, that God is at work in the world to produce this. And so we have this New Testament promise at the beginning of verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. We believe we will have national revival. And as difficult as it gets, and as hard as it may seem, we have a goal that is clearly shown to us. But somehow it's related to the fullness of the gospel among all the other nations. Isn't that what it says? A partial hardening has happened in Israel until the fullness of the nations shall come in. So whenever we travel to East Asia, I always tell them that I have a prophetic word from them from Zion, from the land of Israel. The word is very clear and simple, and the word is, please hurry up. Okay, hurry up with your revival, get the work done, and bring the gospel back to Jerusalem. Because I believe when these two trends converge, there you have the, these, these two great fulfillments. And so that, that satisfies, I believe, the words that uh, Jesus spoke in his, uh, some of his final teaching to his own disciples. Now, how about us personally? I believe it's really important, Asian Americans, we are a bridge people, we are a strategic people in this day. Like I started by saying, in my generation, I've seen this, the move of cultural influence move from east to west in America. So your west coast, your Pacific Rim, you're ethnically Asian, you are ideally positioned to be a part of this incredible movement that God is doing in our day. And you really need to take it to God and you need to say, what's your purpose for me? Why was, why, was, why was I born in this generation to see these things with my eyes that great men and women of God longed to see and missed? Luther missed it. He, he didn't see the restoration of Israel and the reemergence of, of messianic, messianic Jews. Calvin missed it. These, Augustine missed it. I mean, they, they, they would have loved to be sitting with us today, to know the things that we know, to have seen the things that we've seen take place in our own generation. But what it means for us, I believe, is that we need to catch the wave of God's purposes. God is... God has business to complete before the return of his son. And he's no respecter of persons. We're not talking about partiality. He's looking for servants who will catch the wave of his purposes and go with him. How many of you ever have ever surfed? I know this is Southern California. Any surfers here? Pat. <laughs> now, I don't mean the internet. <laughs> okay, for the rest of you, it's really simple. You all know how, how this thing works, okay? Rule number one. Get off the beach. Get out where the waves are, okay? Rule number two, you get your board pointed in the right direction. Prophetically, what direction is it? West, okay? West, because that's the direction of completion of the gospel, okay? Get your board pointed in the right direction. Then you wait, because surfing isn't about waves, it's about the wave, 
Okay, and when you when you catch a glimpse of this of the wave coming, the wave that is moving through your generation, the wave of God's purpose, you start to paddle with all of your might. But surfing is not about your paddling. You only paddle to get yourself moving. Because surfing is about catching the power that's in the wave, in the wave of God's purpose. You get yourself onto God's purposes, and that tsunami wave of his power takes you for the ride of your life. You position your, yourself there, your family there, your ministry there, and it will take you to places you couldn't even imagine. And remember, this, this wave of God's purpose is rearranging the landscape. When, when it hits the shore, it doesn't leave things the same. Asia is being changed. America is fighting a, a tremendous battle right now. And America is still the fat part of the wave. Okay, but it's moving towards China. It's moving towards Korea. It's moving towards Japan. That's where the wave is going. Well, we have run out of time, so let's pick it up there next time on Evidence and Answers. By the way, if you want to keep a quality apologetics program on the air and on the web, please support Evidence and Answers with your prayers and financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing the many resources we have online, including Pat's new book with Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. So check out our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you can also invite Pat to speak at your next event, church, campus, or conference on the most crucial issues facing the world today and how the Christian worldview provides the best answers to the best questions. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Be sure and join us again for Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.